theyeshiva.net. our hosts, Abish and Florian Mandel, for putting together for putting together such an incredible event. It is so beautiful and so warm and so lichtig. And what I'd like to wish you is that in the schus of bringing lichtigkeit to so many Yidin and to a whole neighborhood and to a cold winter, and here we are in a tent out there and it's varam at this point, that you should be zeicher to warm up your family, your children, your grandchildren, Amen. and all future descendants forever, and it should be a lichtige, lichtige stub in Bonni Chaya Mezayne Revichi. Amen. Poishkin Bekvoid Achsanya, I also want to express our gratitude to our dear Machnise Yorchem, our dear hosts, this evening, Reb Avish and Flori Mandel. I'm grateful tonight because uh, from our Pesach experiences together, he's the Gabbai and he's been always interrupting me for Mincha. As you know, Rebavich likes when things run on time. And unfortunately, I'm not the best at that. They say, what happens when a Lubavitcher marries a Yeke? What happens? So you have a Mashiach who comes on time. But since, since we're already after Mincha, and since we're already after Mairiv, so the Mela. <laughs> but I want to thank our hosts for, uh, for inviting us and creating such a tremendous atmosphere and ambiance for all of us here to celebrate the Chagagul of Yutas Kislev. And uh, tonight, the Leilu Nishmas, Reb Label Bistritsky, whom I knew very well for many, many years, a great man, a great Jew, a great chassid. I want to begin with a Torah, a Gewaldic Torah in Hasidus, on a very strange moment in this week's Parsha, in Parsha's Vayeshev. The scene is well known, and many, many interpretations have been presented, but I want to share one individual one that... Uh, found very moving and very relevant and very personal. Everybody knows the moment the Pesach describes in Vayeshev, Vayava Yosef Abaisa Lassus Melachtoi. Yosef has been sold as a slave to Poitifar, Paro's chief butcher in Egypt. Poitifar's wife took a liking to Yosef, and notwithstanding her beseeching him and begging and requesting and threatening of him again and again to be with her, he refuses Vayimoyen. And then one day she seizes the opportunity when nobody is home, Vayin Ishmei Anshei 
and Yosef himself comes home Lasas Malachte to do his work. And that's the moment that Vatispeseu Bivigdoi Vatoimer Shikhvi she grabs him by his cloak and she says, Lay with me. Yosef Hatzadik, the Torah says, Vayonos, Vayetze Hachutza, he escapes, he flees. She holding on to his cloak, of course, gets a piece of it, the cloak tears, she gets a piece of it, she uses it as proof that he attempted to violate her, he's thrown into prison, and the entire continuation of the narrative. So Chazal, the Gemara, Mesech Tesoyte, quoted by Rashi, bring the famous argument of Rav and Shmuel, what is the meaning of the words, He came home to do his work. Does it mean literally he came home to do his work? Or does it mean that Yosef, after all this time, finally surrendered. He finally succumbed to the wife of Potiphar. What happened? So the Gemara says in Saita, Daf Lamedvav, it's brought in Zoyhar on the Parsha, it's brought in Medrash Rabbah, Ba'oyser Shah, Nireloi Dmuzdi Yoiknoi, Shal Yaakov Aviv Bachaloin. At that moment, Yosef saw the visage, the image of Yaakov, his father, in the window. And that caused him to abstain, that caused him to tell Potiphar's wife no, to tell himself no, and to escape. Everybody wonders what was it about the Dmuzdi Yoiknoi Shal Yaakov Aviv? What was it about the image, the visage, the picture of his father Yaakov that caused this transformation in Yosef? In Gemara, in Saita at least, it says that Yaakov told him something. He warned him that if he follows through with the act, his name won't be mentioned on the Aphoid together with the other Shvatim on the apron of the Koyin Gadol, his name would be deleted. Still, you have to understand why is it important that the image appear, the image of Yaakov, not just the words. But in the other sources, in Zohar, and many other sources, it's clear that the image of Yaakov itself was the prevailing factor that altered the course of Yosef HaTzadik and really the course of Jewish history. And is the reason he was given, the Zoyer says, the name Tzadik, Yosef HaTzadik, because of that moment, that test, that victory, that personal triumph. Yosef knew what his father looked like. He spent 17 years in the bosom of his father. He knew what his father looked like. He didn't have to be reminded. He knew who his father was. He knew what his father taught him. That did not help. At this moment, Yosef was ready to surrender to the wife of Potiphar. What changed the situation? He saw the visage of Yaakov. What is it in the face of Yaakov that caused Yosef to be able to say no? So one of the interpretations that's given in this in Hasidus is, the Gemara says in Masech the Brachas, Shufre de Yaakov, Me'ein Shufre de Adam Arishan. There was something in the resemblance of Yaakov, our father, that resembled, that reflected the visage, the face, the features of Adam Harishan of the first person, the first human being who ever lived. 
When Yosef, in other words, saw the image of his father, he saw not only his father's face, essentially he saw the face of Adam Harishon. And it was the face of Adam Harishon that was to prove so critical a salvation at this moment. Because allow me, if we may, to reflect for a moment on the predicament, on the situation of Yosef. And I know that we have a very little, we have very little understanding in the depth and the greatness of the neshama of Yosef. But I'm going to apply it at least the way we view it from our own perspective. Even though with Yosef itself, you know, his madregas, his status, his spiritual soul was, was beyond our comprehension. Yosef was 17 years old. He lost his mother at the age of nine, according to the Seder Hadiris. He was orphaned at a young age. So a mother he did not have. His father loved him, but his siblings despised him. They loathed him. And then on one bright day in Shechem, which has always been a problematic city, still quite a problematic city, or as they call it, Nabalus, his own siblings, his own siblings, throw him into a pit and sell him into slavery. This was not done by the mafia. It was not done by some gangsters. It was not done by his father's enemies. It was done by his own brothers. Now, some people have issues with their brothers. I'm sure nobody in this tent. But there are people who have made issues with their brothers. But your brother never threw you into a pit. So he lost his mother. And now his own siblings sold him into slavery. In a single moment he lost his liberty, his freedom. He was not a free man. And he was sold as a slave to Egypt. Egypt uh, was not a great democracy then. Still not a great democracy. Shechem remains Shechem. And Egypt remains Egypt. He's a slave and a slave meant a slave for life. This is quite a few years before Abraham Lincoln did what he did. A slave meant a slave for life. So a prince... A son of Yaakov, a great-grandson of Avram, a grandson of Yitzchak, is now a slave for life to whom? To Poitifa, the Sarah Tabachim, the chief butcher of Egypt, Ervas Haaretz, one of the most morally, the most morally depraved region on earth. Shtufezima, as Chazal say, where moral depravity reigned. No mother, no father, no family, no siblings, alone in the world. As a teenager, as a 17-year-old, if you can imagine loneliness, solitariness, you know, often people complain that they're lonely. They're surrounded by siblings and by parents and by zaydis and by aunts and by uncles. But they're lonely. They're existentially lonely. Rabbi Soloveitchik wrote a book, Isha Amuna Haboide, The Lonely Man of Faith. And its introduction, he writes, I'm surrounded by many friends, by many students, by many pupils, by many admirers, but I'm lonely. But here the loneliness reached a different level. This was real, real loneliness. And finally he succeeded in that place. Relatively speaking, he made it to the top. Paitifar trusted him with everything. And here the wife of Paitifar tells him, I just need from you one thing. I need a few moments of your time to be with me. And the Gemara says in Yuma, Some of you will soon learn it in a few days. How she did it. She changed her garments, her, her uh, attire a few times a day. 
Sie ist gekommen mit guten, mit schlechten, positive und negative. She threatened him to poke his eyes out, to imprison him, to kill him. She promised him the world if he surrenders to her, if he allows her to own him, as the Gemara says, for a few moments. The Medrash Rabbin, Bereshish Rabbin, the Gemara in Yuma, many places in Chazal, they describe in vivid detail that Poitifar's wife wasn't just putting in a request. This wasn't just a text message or a memo. Poitifar's wife yielded her entire power and influence to get it to Yosef. So there was really a question here of Pikuach Nefesh, literally. His life was at stake. We see what she did when he refused her. She threw him into a prison where he would have remained for life in a pit, if not for the continuation of events. And she threatened she would do this. So number one, it's before Matan Torah, before the Torah was given. It was an issue of pikuach nefesh. After matan Torah, giliarayas, adultery is one of the three, like the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, which is Yehorig, Val, Yaver, the three cardinal sins that you have to give your life for, adultery, idolatry, and murder. But this is before the giving of the Torah. One can argue halachically, in a state of pikuach nefesh, before giving the Torah to save a life, it may have been the right thing to do. Number two, remember, this is Yosef's entire future at stake. Number three, very often the motivations for people to behave morally are your parents, nachas, your family, your community. Yosef had nothing of this. Trust me, there would be no signs going up after this story about Yaakov, about Yosef, about his brothers. On the contrary, in Egypt, this was the ordinary behavior. This is how everybody did it. It wouldn't have affected his shidduch. It wouldn't have affected which moist has taken his children, which yeshiva has taken his boys, which seminary taken his girls. His brothers wouldn't be embarrassed. His mother, his stepmother, his father. There would be no shame. It's Egypt, it's Mitzrayim. A lone soul. Naturally, one can understand logically that Yosef may surrender with such pressure in such a state of mind. Yosef might surrender. And yet he did not. He triumphed morally. How? What gave him the stamina, the courage to be able to come out victorious. The answer is, He saw the visage of his father reflecting the visage, the face of Adam Harishan. And he remembered that story about Adam Harishan. What's the story about Adam Harishan? Adam and Chava were placed in a garden filled with abundant amount of trees. Hashem told them, Mikol Eitzagan, from all the trees you can eat as much as you want, enjoy. There's only one tree from which you can't eat. What type of tree was it? So we know the Gemara says in Brachas, was it an esrig? Was it a vine? Was it a fig tree? Was it wheat? There are those who want to say it was an apple, not in our sources, but that's the famous version, it was an apple. But let's take the version of the Gemara. It was a fig. Hashem said, you see that fig tree? It's off limits. 
Why? What's wrong with figs? Okay, no figs. But despite God's commandment, with the influence of a serpent and the influence of Chava and Adam's decision, he takes the fig and he eats it. And as a result of that single act of consumption, history was altered for eternity. Everything changed. Life, death, and everything in between. Childbirth, child rearing, identity, spiritual identity, psychological identity. Everything about the human condition and about the destiny of civilization was altered dramatically at that moment. Now I ask you a question. Imagine I tell my child, this is just for illustration purposes, imagine I tell my child or I tell my friend, I say, you see this raisin? No eating it. Don't eat it. It's not good for you. Don't eat it. That's what the doctor told every person in this room at some point. But you know better. Even if the doctor is right, how right can he be? Imagine you don't listen and you eat this raisin. And I tell you, as a result, the course of history was transformed. It's an insane idea. You ate one fruit and as a result, as a result, so many things happen. How arrogant can you be? How insane can you be? How delusional can you be to imagine that as a result of eating a single fruit, history was changed. But that's the story of Adam. The story of Adam is that as a result of eating one fruit, civilization's destiny was transformed in numerous ways, as described in Chumash, and even more in Teresh of Alpah, in Gemara, in Medrash, and even more in Kabbalah, even more, but the effects of the Eitz Hadas. We blame almost everything on that fig. Poor fig. Why were you late to yeshiva? They once asked the boy. He said, because Adam made from the Eitz Hadas. <laughs> and, and he's right. It's not a bad excuse. It's actually the best excuse. It's the genesis of everything. He's right. Why are you confused, Adam Neitzadas? Since the Neitzadas, the world essentially went into therapy. Yeah. First question, Ayaka, where are you? What, what do you think that is? He didn't know where Adam was? Ayaka, where are you? The world went into therapy. For Matan Torah, we had a little break. And then 40 days later, we're back in therapy. And uh, hopefully we'll soon heal. We'll soon emerge healthy. We're working on it. How? How? When Yosef looked at the image of Yaakov, he saw the image of Adam. And he realized, Vos Amensh is. He realized what a human being is. On Adam, a human being's greatest mistake is when he or she considers themselves to be a small, insignificant, valueless creature. My actions don't matter, my words don't matter, my thoughts don't matter, I don't matter. In Adam's image, he realized that the human being is that link, the link that is essentially the link that interlaces heaven and earth. It's the axis upon which all of existence revolves. 
the Balatanya used to quote his Rebbe, the Magid of Mizrich, the pupil of the Balshemtiv. And the Magid of Mizrich, Reb Doivber, his yard said, is on Yutas Kislev, the 19th of Kislev, Tovkuf Lamed Gimel 1772. And he quoted the Mishnah says in Perkeyavas, Dam Mala Maila Mimach, know what is above you. So he explained, Da, no. Mala Maila, whatever happens, Lamaila, Mimach, it's all from you. It's all from you. You're so large, you're so powerful, you're so majestic. Because your soul is a fragment of infinity. It's a chelik elikamimal. And therefore, its actions or lack of them affect the past, present, and future and create a cataclysmic impact on all of history. They tell an anecdote that there was once a, uh, an, Indian, uh, an Indian tribe that was looking for a chief, a new leader, a chief. So they put in an ad in the newspaper, this Indian tribe is looking for a chief. So this Jew needed a job, as usual, so he decided to apply. He had a, somewhat of a darker complexion, so he can uh, define himself as a descendant of the Indians. And they liked what they saw, and they hired him as the chief. The first question he had to answer, of course, is, they tell you, look into the stars as winter is about to come, and tell us what type of winter it's going to be. That's how they know the winter. They look in the stars and they predict the nature of the coming winter. So this Jew, uh, maybe he knew how to read the stock market. He didn't know how to read the stars. So he looks up and he's like, God help me, what am I supposed to say? So he gives a classic Jewish answer which we call pariv. Not milchiks and not fleshiks. He says, from the stars it seems that it's going to be somewhat of a cold winter. Okay. I think we should lower the, the volume. Maybe I could speak without the mic, no? So You got it? <laughs> so, he tells them, I looked in the stars, and from the stars it seems that it's going to be somewhat of a cold winter. You know, with the word somewhat, you could say anything. Somewhat azoi, somewhat azoi. They say, okay, somewhat of a cold winter. They collect some wood to be able to warm themselves. He sneaks out of the, hikta- of the town of the Indians... And he goes nearby to another town. There's a public phone. You remember the concept of public phones? Aleyem HaShalom. He puts in a dime, as they used to put into a public phone. He calls up the weather bureau in Washington. And he says, tell me, what's this winter looking like? They say, oh, it's going to be cold. He comes back to the Indians. I looked in the stars again. It's going to be cold. Psst, gewalt. The Indian chief changed from somewhat cold to cold, so they collect even more wood. He sneaks out the next week, he calls again the Washington Weather Bureau, he asks them for a prediction for the winter. 
They say it's going to be very cold. Goes back to the Indians. He says, I saw something new in the stars. It's going to be really very cold. Now, their mom is frantic. They collect lots of lumber with such a cold winter, they're going to have to have lots of fires to warm their cold bones. Sneaks out the next week, and the weather bureau tells him it's going to be excruciatingly cold. He goes back and he reports what he's seeing in the stars. So now men, women, and children, 24 hours a day, all they're doing is collecting lumber for a very, very excruciatingly cold winter. Now he sneaks out the next week, calls up Washington, he says, New, tell me about the winter. They say it's going to be the coldest winter in the U.S. history. Now the guy plots And he says, you know, you're making me really meshuggah. I come the first week, I call you, you tell me cold. The next week, very cold. The next week, excruciatingly cold. Now you decide it's going to be the coldest winter. Why can't you just make up your mind? So the guy tells him, listen, I don't know who you are and what you are. I'll be very blunt and honest with you. You think we know anything about the weather? You think we know anything about the winter? We know nothing. All we know is that this year, the Indians are collecting wood like crazy. You see, da mala maila mimach. Often I think I'm getting my information from you. And I'm a recipient. And really their entire prediction was coming from this person. When Yosef saw the visage of Adam reflected in the visage of his father, that taught him, it reminded him what a human being is, what a soul is, Vas Aneshama is, what lay in the depth of a person's identity, how much infinite depth, how much limitless value, how much indescribable dignity, how much majestic courage, koyach, power, confidence. When he saw him, when he saw Adam, he saw himself in a different way. And once he saw himself in a different way, he looked at Petifor's wife, Vayimohen. He says, no way. Vayonos, he escapes. He flees. What's He went outside. He went outside. So the Balaturim, the Mepharshim bring that the same term hachutza you have with Avram Avinu. Hashem took Avram Avinu out hachutza. And he told them to look up, to count the stars, So what does Rashi say from Chazal? That he raised them up, He raised them up behind the cavity of the world, behind the gravity of the world. And allowed him to look at it from that perspective. You see, We often view ourselves and our children from a very narrow place from a very limited place, and sometimes we live our whole life from that place. We never even know who we are. Our entire identity has been defined by forces outside of us. And usually, 
pressure some forces, and often in the name of religion, and in the name of Judaism, and in the name of halacha. And instead of reinforcing our self-respect, they actually cause us to hate ourselves, to denigrate ourselves, to tell ourselves how bad we are. At that moment he went out from the confinements, from the parameters, from the shackles, from the prison, the psychological prison, that often doesn't allow you to see yourself for who you are, that keeps you confined in a cellar, psychologically, for your whole life, viewing life from that place, interacting from that place, living from that place, getting angry from that place, feeling guilty from that place, educating your children from that place. What a tragedy. He went out of that confinement because he saw Yaakov. So he saw Adam. And Adam had baggage, but not much. He didn't have a mother-in-law. He didn't have a father-in-law. He didn't go to school. He didn't have a mother. He didn't have a father. The human condition is baggage. There's nobody to blame. The human condition is dealing with baggage. But Adam had a, pure, had a transparency, had a purity. It was the first generation. And in his act lay the future of civilization. And when Yosef saw that, it taught him who he is. And the moment he saw who he is in the image of Yaakov, it was clear to him as the day that the right response to Potiphar's wife is no. No. Because da mala mimach. The greatest tragedy is when a person doesn't know who he or she is and what lay in our deepest potential. L'chaim, l'chaim, l'chaim. Hasidus, he once went in to the base medrash, the big base medrash in the city of Shklov. Shklov is a city in Litten, Lithuania, which was an ir ve'aim, ir meleya seifen, was a city filled, filled with Torah, with Talmidei Chachamim, with scholars, with go'inim, geniuses, great minds, great geniuses in Torah, tremendous b'nei Torah. The Balatanya, as you know, his name is Schneur, and it's already been explained, Schneur, two lights, because he was a towering figure, both in Nigla and in Ister. 
in the light of Nigla and in the light of Nister. So he came to Shklov and he went on to the Bima. In the shul he went on to the Bima and he gave a clap on the Bima. And the Balatanya used to speak with a nigan, with a melody, even an ordinary conversation. The Gemara says in Sukkah, even a mundane conversation of a Talmud Chachem has to be studied. The Balatanya, even a so-called mundane conversation, it was always with a nigan, with a melody. So he gets up at the bim, he gives a clap, and the, the melody has been passed on from generation to generation. He quoted a Pasuk from Tehillim that we say Shabbos morning, and he said it in this nigan, and then he explained it in Yiddish, and then I'll translate. He gave a clap on the bim and he said, Tamuru kitoiv havaya Farzucht vetirzen as der eibrishter is gut. Tamuru kitoiv Hashem. Taste, taste, tamu, uru'u, and then you'll see kitoiv Hashem as der eibrishter is gut. In simple English, that God is good. That God is good. And dozens of Yungalite, great Talmidei Chachamim, after he left the shul, pursued him and became some of his greatest disciples, his greatest Talmidim. And what he meant, first and foremost, was that very often, one can be a Jew, one can be a religious Jew, one can even be a Ben Torah, one can learn and one can daven, and one can do mitzvahs, and one can raise their family in the Jewish path, and be part of a Jewish community, and be part of a shul, and be involved, etc., etc. But what's missing is the tamuru, the tamuru kitoiv havaya. Can my child say, can I say, that I really can taste and see that God is good? It's good. It's something that is as precious to me as the breath of my life. It's not just good because I'm told to say it's good. Or because I'm scared to say it's not good. That's not called good. If you say something is good because you're afraid to say it's not good, then trust me, it's not that good. If you're afraid that if you say it's not good, you're going to get punished. Or there's going to be a grand barbecue awaiting you in the next world. So what type of good is that? It's a fearful good. It's a pressuresome good. It's a guilt-ridden good. That's not good. And it's one of our callings today. I don't want to say our challenges because that sounds like a scary word. But I think it's one of our, our great callings today. Can we recapture in 2013 in Tovshanai in Dalad Yutas Kislev the Tamuru the Tamuru Kitoiv Hashem Fazucht Vetezenaz Rebish Tizgut and I want to address this this evening in the continuation of our, of our evening here of learning and of inspiration and of singing. But as I think a proper hachana for this is, there's the famous nigan of the Balatanya known as the Dalit Babas, the four stanzas. It's a nigan that he composed in which he encapsulated his entire shita of Hasidus, Hasidus Chabad. It has four stanzas corresponding to the four worlds of Atzilus, Briya, Yitzira, Asiya starts with Asiya, the world of action, goes up to the world of Yitzira, the world of Bria, the world of Atzillus. I know these words are complicated. I also don't understand them. But there are four states of consciousness that he develops a lot in his Hasidus, based on the, based on the Kabbalah. 
And uh, this nigan he encapsulated the oimek, the depth, the depth of his shita. And it's sung at special times of the year. It's sung off uh, by many, by, by chasanas and weddings and other occasions, including at the, at the Fabrenganish and at the gatherings of Jews in honor of Yutas Kislev. So we'll sing this uh, special nigan of the Balatanya, then we'll continue with some more Torah Bezid Hashem. Usually it's sung with a preparation, with a nigan hachana. We have it of David Stein, the Reisha Menagin and Bechol Makim. Huh? Shlerp Shleimer. Ya 
They tell a Misa, they tell a story that there was once a large city with a large Jewish community. And as in all the old stories, there's always a bishop who doesn't like the Jews. And he goes to the pirates, he goes to the overlord, and he tries to uh, persuade him to persecute the Jewish population in a city. But to no avail. So one day, he came up with a great idea. This pirates, this overlord, had a dog who was a favorite pet. He loved and cherished his dog very, very deeply. So the bishop one day approaches the pirates, this overlord, and he says, I want you to know that the Jews have a secret mystical tradition. They know how to teach dogs how to communicate verbally. They don't reveal it to anybody who is not Jewish, but among themselves they have this mystical tradition under their guidance, a dog can begin talking. Like a regular person. Really? Wow. Imagine if my dog and I would be able to have conversations. Even without conversations, my dog is my best friend. Never mind if, if I would be able to talk and my dog would be able to respond. I wouldn't need anything else in the world. So he summons the Rosh Hakal. He summons the leaders of the community. And he says, I found out that you have a secret tradition of how to make dogs talk. So I make a gzair, I hereby decree, I want you to teach my dog to talk. They say, Your Majesty, this is false. We don't know how to teach dogs to talk. You're lying, you're deceiving. This is the final verdict. 
You have three days to give me a response. If you agree, good. And within three days, after three days you say no, you're all expelled from my city. You and your wives and your children, you're out. Three days, they're fasting, they're meeting, they're screaming, they're crying. What do you do? This guy, Chapta Zhukinkop, something went into his head. Amaisa, that we know how to teach dogs to talk. How do we convince him out of it? After three days of meetings, and you know how Jewish meetings go. I don't have to tell this crowd how Jewish meetings go. One meeting brings to another meeting, to another meeting, so it should be another meeting. They have no solution. At the last meeting, Chaim Yankel, who was a simple woodchopper, he gets up and he says, I'll go. They say, and what are you going to do? He says, I'll do what I think is best to do. And uh, you don't have any better idea. So if I fail, you'll blame it on me. You'll say Chaim Yankel is not very intelligent. He failed. And if I succeed, what do you have to lose? They really had no other choice. So they agreed that Chaim Yankel is going to go. Chaim Yankel goes to the Paritz. After three days, Your Majesty, I'm here. Nu, what's your decision? Decision is, you're right. We can teach dogs how to talk, it's true. And I'm the one who does it. But you understand it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a schmitter. It takes seven years. You have to give me your dog for seven years. So over seven years, day in and day out, I will teach it. After seven years, I bring you back a talking, communicative, verbal dog. Beautiful. Parit says goodbye to his dog. Gives it to Chaim Yankel. Chaim Yankel comes back to Shul. With a Grayson Kalev, with a Grayson Hund, with a big dog. They say, No, what happened? He tells them what happened. They begin screaming at him. How dare you do such a thing? We know that you can't teach a dog to talk. Imagine what you're going to cause to the community after seven years. The dog won't be talking. Not only will he expel us, God should preserve us. What the dire consequences will be. He says, Jews, relax, relax. In seven years, lots of things can happen. For starters, the hunt can starve. Within seven years, the dog can die. If the dog remains alive, the pottets can starve. Seven years, the overlord can die. If the dog and the pirates are alive, in seven years, can it starve? <laughs> I can also kick the bucket within seven years. Who knows what tomorrow's going to bring? I'm not a, I'm not a spring chicken. I'm an elderly Jew. Don't worry. And they say, and what happens if after seven years the dog is alive and the pirates is alive and you're alive, Rahman al And you're also alive. May God preserve us. What do we do then? He says, then we'll have to work with the circumstances. What do you have to worry now about what might or might not happen in seven years? Taka Jewish straight to worry about every possible outcome. Relax. Enjoy life for seven years. If things don't work out, if unfortunately we're all alive, we'll deal with it. But we can enjoy seven years. Not a small feat in exile. Okay, makes sense. He takes the dog. He has a nice dog for seven years. 
seven years pass, the dog is alive, the Paritz is alive, and Chaimankel is alive. They have an emergency meeting, Was yet? what do we do now? He says, I'll go back to the Paritz. What are you going to tell him? Leave it up to me. He leaves the dog at home, he comes back to the Paritz, the day after the seven years were up. The Paritz says, No, no, how is my dog? Can I meet it? Can I talk to it? He says, as I promised you, seven years is seven years. Last night, when seven years were up, suddenly, Vayiftach Hashem Espiyakelev. The mouth of your dog opened, and it began talking. The poet says, and what did it say? Chaimankel said, he started to tell me everything that happened in your bedroom. Over the last 15 years. He says, you go and shoot him right away. You go and shoot that dog dead right away. He says, your majesty, that's exactly what I'm going to do. It's the end of the story. But it really, the story contains various human lessons. And one of them, I think, is relevant to part of our discussion, part of our discussion. You all heard of the Ramchal. The Ramchal, Rabbeinu Moshe Chaim Lutzato, was a great Makubal, a great philosopher, a great writer, a great scholar, the author of Mesilis Yisharim, Das Tfunais, Klach Pischei and many, many other Svarim, many other books. The Ramchal had a student whose name was Reb Moshe Vali. Reb Moshe Vali also has many writings, and he has an interpretation on a Posik in Amos. The Navi, the Prophet says in Amos, Perik Yud Aleph Posik Ches, and you all know the verse because of the song, you know, those few Psukim and Tanakh that had Mazel. <laughs> that the contemporary singers turned them into a song. So those are the Psukim that Jews know. I mean, there's a whole huge Bible, but that's not for us, that we think is for Christians. But the few Psukim that made it into to, to, to those. I once, I'm, you're laughing, I once was invited by the Pentagon to speak to the U.S. chief of chaplains, the top chaplains of the U.S. Army, thousands of, of Episcopalians and Baptists and Catholics and Protestants. There are 15 Jewish chaplains in the entire U.S. Army. That includes the Navy and the Air Force and the Army and, and 4,000 non-Jewish chaplains. You know, somehow, I don't know why, but somehow Jews don't feel a great uh, yearning to join the U.S. Army. Uh, for some reason, they prefer real estate. <laughs> what the reason is, I'm not sure, but as is the Metzius. So the chaplaincy reflects it. So uh, it was a very interesting experience. I was invited to speak the keynote for their, for their conference. It was entitled, Faith and Fear in Times of Crisis. And, uh, you know... I could be honest with you, it's much easier to talk to Goyim than it is to talk to Jews. 
Because first of all, they all shut their cell phones in the beginning when you tell them to. Because they know how to listen. A Jew, you know, who is he to tell me to shut my cell phone? Besides, besides Netanyahu may be calling me tonight to find out what he should do with Iran. And besides, you know, I'm a prominent person. You never know who's going to be on the phone. It might be the deal of my life. But Gentiles are not so complicated. So they shut their cell phones. The second difference is, Jews usually it's very hard for them to listen. They're busy forming an opinion. Even if they like it, what they're thinking about, he's good, he's very good, he's not bad. That I heard already. Okay, will he say anything new? A Jew is never listening. He's always judging if he likes it, he doesn't, we're classifying. Gentiles actually listen. They listen and they participate. But one very interesting thing, and what I wanted to bring out is, is there, there, it was all chaplains, so they're all, they're all priests and ministers, all of them, kamat, kamat, all of them. They're pkiyas, they're, they're pkiyas in the Bible. And I'm talking about the Old Testament, and the Hebrew Bible was phenomenal. Every posik I said, I was quoting a lot of psukim, every posik I said, so they scream out, you know, Amos 4, 6, uh, Exodus, Exodus 17, yeah, Genesis 41. And they're screaming with, with such enthusiasm. It was once a Christian who wrote, he said the most beautiful piece of poetry he saw in his life and inspires him constantly is Psalms chapter 145. So I showed it to Yeshiva Bacher and I said, you know what Psalms chapter 145 is? He says, no. I say, it's Ashrei. It's Ashrei. <laughs> Tell me, how inspiring a poem is that to you? How inspiring is that poem? <laughs> so, sometimes the distance allows enthusiasm. You know, they say, Arum dem yam is trucking. Around the ocean it's dry. Sometimes the, around the sand around the beach is dry. Sometimes the distance allows for enthusiasm. So there's a Pasuk in Amos, Perek Yudalef. You don't have to scream Pasuk Ches, it's fine. You're Jewish, Baruch Hashem. The Navi, the Prophet says, Hine yomim boyim, Mishlachti rav ba'aretz, Loi rav, the monogamy will soon take it away with the melody. What is he saying? There will be days, there will be a hunger. But don't think it will be a hunger to bread. A famine in which people are yearning for bread and thirsty for water. To listen to the word of Hashem. So the Ramchal student, Ramchal passed away the 1740s the same era of the Balshemtiv. he lived, passed away and he lived in Italy, moved to Eretz Yisrael passed away in Tiberia and Tiberias the Ramchal student of Moshe Valley writes as follows Pshat Chazal say already from the Psukim that Lechem and Mayim are a metaphor in Tanakh for Torah Ein Mayim the Gemara says about Bekama Ein Mayim El Torah, water is Torah Lechem, lechu, lachmu, belachmi. Mix your bread with my bread. Apostle in Mishle. 
again refers to Torah. Lechem and Mayim are metaphors in Tanakh often to Torah, to the wisdom of Torah. Hine yamim boyim, days will come. Vishlachti rov baritz, loy rov la lechem veloy tzomil amayim. Taichus Reb Moishevali, the student of the Ramchal. It won't be a thirst to lechem as Torah and mayim water as Torah. Kiyim lishmoya as dvar Hashem. Meaning, there was a time that there was a thirst by the Jewish people and there was a shortage in the availability, the accessibility of Torah. But there will be a day, there won't be a hunger for Torah. Why won't there be a hunger for Torah? Because there'll be plenty of it. There'll be plenty of it. You want a shear? You want a class? You have every type of class in the world. If not live, on the web. If not on the web, on the MP3, on the MP4. On an iPhone, on a smartphone, on a Blackberry on an iPod, on an iPad, was the willst. Coming in from one ear, going out from another ear, going in from both ears. You're driving, you're walking, you're jogging, you're on a treadmill, whatever you are, you're talking, you're, wherever you are, you could learn and learn and learn. And people are learning tremendously. Whatever you want to learn. You want to learn Nigla, you want to learn Nista, you want to learn Zvachim, you want to learn Chaydas, you want to learn Halachi, you want to learn Agadi, you want to learn Medrash, you want to learn Tanakh. You want Ashkafi, you want inspiration, you want stories, you want Dafyami, you want Mishnah Bruder. Whatever you want, you could learn. And that's an awesome blessing. You want it in English, you want it in French, you want it in Russian, you want it in Portuguese, you want it in Hebrew. Any language, the accessibility is really nothing short of a divine gift for our age. No question. So what's the hunger? The hunger is Lairav la lechem alaitsamalamayim kiim lishmoyas dvar hashem. Shmoyas dvar hashem is I have the bread and I have the water, but I'm looking for the word of God. I want to feel God. I want a relationship with Hashem. I don't know what it is. I follow his commandments. I heard a lot of things about him, but I don't know what it is. I, d- I never felt, I don't know what it is. I heard what it has to be. I heard from my father's stories from the Alta Tzaddikim. I heard. I maybe even saw when I was a kid, I maybe even saw somebody who looked very holy. I see ads, Tzaddik Bali here, you know. And they tell me there's 36 hidden guys somewhere, you know, that pay taxes and do the right thing. And some other things, not, not only that. But that's probably pretty big, I think. I, I was taught mices. I was taught what I'm supposed to feel, what's good to feel. I, I know what it says in Svarim. I read Svarim. I read Musr. I read Chesidosh Avertlach. I know it all. But I'm hungry. I'm hungry because... I don't know what the experience is. I mean, I can be delusional. I could, I could fantasize. I can dream. But I, if I'm honest with myself, I just get more frustrated. I get more frustrated because I don't feel it's authentic. I don't feel the real, the noyam, the noyam Hashem 
the pleasantness, the sweetness. Ka'echsoif noyam Shabbos. Anim zmiroiz v'shirim eroig k'yelecha nafshi sarek. Sure, I know all the stories about Sama nafshi lelekim lekel choy. I know the vertlach. I could say a nice pshat. Yeah, I could say over a maral. I could say over a sichis musa from Reb Chaim Shmulevich. I could say over a mahalik from the Svas Emes. I could say a nice vertel from Reb Shem Shem Pinkis. I could master, I could master a Reb Chaim and a Reb Baruch Ber. I could spend a night on a Reb Akiva Eger, on a Blat and Shas, on a Sugya, on a Simon and Shulchan Aruch. I can do it. Especially if somebody has a good mind, is a Balkishan. So He's looking for the Dvar Hashem in the bread. He's looking for the Dvar Hashem in the water. He's looking actually to feel what is this what is this called Avaidis Hashem, serving Hashem? What is this called Elokus godliness? Can somebody build a genuine, intimate relationship with God? Or is it just telling a story about people who somehow told stories about other people? That's what he teaches in the Pasuk. And uh, the Balatanya wrote a sefer called Tanya. And on the title page, on the Sharblat, what's called the title page... He wrote that it's miyusad on a pasuk in Nitzavim kikarev elacha adavim miyoyd befichel vavchal asaisa. His premise is kikarev elacha adavim miyoyd. It's close. Close doesn't mean geographically close. Means it's relevant. It's 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 close. Meaning it's achievable. It's relatable to the real person. But how do you make a dog talk? <laughs> how do you make a dog talk? And in many ways we're programmed. Not to even search, not to even uh, go to the Dvar Hashem. We're programmed in a shear. What's a good shear? A shear is a good structure. You have a good question. You have a good story. A joke is also good to put in. You have a good answer. Some type of lesson. That's a great shear. What's a great sermon? Another few features. Make them cry, make them laugh, take off your glasses. For some people, what's a good davening? So for some people, it's a fast davening is a good davening. And for other people, you know, if you close your eyes, if you scream, if you make with your hands, what's a good shear, a good shear, a good shear, a good shear, you know, there's a thorough, a gruntike shear, you have a brisk shear, you have a polish shear, but a shear, a pkiyas, an iyun, whatever it is. But what about the lishmoya dvar Hashem? The kiyim l'shmoya is dvar Hashem. The hunger, not for the facts, not for the information, not for the stories, not for the wisdom, but the l'shmoya dvar Hashem. Looking for, to, to touch God, to have a, a real relationship with Hashem. What, what is that? Can that be found in Yiddishkeit? Can that be bequeathed? Can that be bequeathed to children? It's a phenomenon. Whether you agree or you disagree, it's irrelevant. I'm talking about, uh, uh, from a journalistic point of view, it's a phenomenon that there are 30,000 Jews that go to Uman for Rosh Hashanah. 
I don't know how many of them know the Kuti Maran by heart. I never went to Uman. I know a little bit of the Maran. Why do 30,000 Jews go to Uman Rosh Hashanah? Tell me why. Taka, my friend, Reblazer Shiner, gives food. Kiyad HaMelech, they built a kitchen there. Kisudr Shleim HaBashaita. But probably not everybody's going to Uman to have Kisudr Shleim HaBashaita. It's this hunger. It's this hunger. And I'm not talking about whether it's fulfilled there or not. It's irrelevant here now to, to scrutinize and, and analyze and dissect. I'm talking about us. But this, this is the yearning of Lishmoya Dvar Hashem. You know, everyone loves talking today about the youth. The youth. <laughs> we love talking about the youth. We're perfect, so we just talk about the youth. <laughs> we don't realize the youth are just... That's us. <laughs> the youth is just a replica. It's just a reflection. There's an expression in Yiddish. There's an expression you know what the sober guy is thinking about so the drunk talks what we think the kids say that's it trust me the youth are just reflecting what's being experienced there's no there's no there's no two worlds there's no two worlds they're just modeling what we are modeling subconsciously and maybe not even subconsciously quite consciously they're just ex- more expressive today they have more uh, guts to speak they know they're not going to get a frask like we got, so they speak. Thank God they speak. We think they speak. When you speak about something, you can deal with it. When you think about it, then it's hidden. You can't even deal with it. So, you know, we talk about, we talk about the youth. What's the Judaism that they have? What's the Torah that they have? Do they have Torah? Of course, there's tremendous yeshivas and schools and, and koilalim and camps and programs and tests and balpeh and all types of things. And it, it's taka, tremendous bracha, gewaldic. I mean, the story of the renaissance of Torah and Jewish education and yeshiva in the, post, in the post-Second World War years. That's, that's, a, that's an extraordinary, spectacular, splendid story. And at all our conventions and conferences and retreats and, and uh, gatherings, we talk about that great moment, that great, and we should. But there's, there's a, that came also with a simultaneous hunger. And that hunger of, of, of young people and of elderly people is, I'm, I, know the, I know you have bread and I know you have water, but where is the Dvar Hashem? Where is God? Where is God in the process? Is there God in the process? What is this? What is it? What is it? And young people are very sensitive to truth. When they hear a Judaism that is devoid of Dvar Hashem, they feel justifiably that it's not, it's not God's Judaism. So why should they cherish it? I'll tell you something. I know it's not politically correct. Sometimes you could learn the MS about what's going on from kids that leave Yiddishkeit. Because very often, you know, in the world of addiction, everybody knows who becomes an addict, who becomes addicted, those who are very sensitive. Because they're so sensitive, they can't deal 
with a lot of the stuff that we normal people quote unquote deal with. They can't put up with it. The stress, the emptiness, the boredom, the hollowness, the depression, it kills them. So they need to, they need to go to extreme measures to silence the pain, to silence the misery. That's in the world of addiction, which is a very serious world, it's a disease. And, and, and people who are in recovery are very majestic souls. Those of you who are in recovery know what I'm talking about. Those of you who have loved ones in recovery know what I'm talking about. It's what Reish Lakish, who was the quintessential Baltshuva, the Gemara says in Baba Metziah, says in Masech to Yumedav, Peivav, you'll soon learn it. The essence of recovery. The power of Tshuva is that the negative energy becomes part of the positive energy. The addiction itself is what feeds the recovery. The, the, the downfall is the catalyst for, for depth, for awareness. In a similar fashion, although not to compare the two, very often from young people who are hurt or hurt themselves and go far away and you talk to them, you'll often find gems of truth, of MS, that you won't hear in other places. Because they're not speaking from conformity. They're not speaking from fear. There's often, not everybody, of course, sometimes, you know, everyone is stuck in, in deception and lies, but often you can hear very deep, very deep sensitive truths. And uh, from my encounters and conversations, I often hear this. The Lishmaya is Dvar Hashem. He's looking for the Dvar Hashem. All he heard, all he heard was that he's bad or that he has potential that he's not fulfilling or that he's really, really going to be punished by Hashem or that this is the rules and if he follows them, he will become, he might, might become a godly, might become great. What he doesn't hear is the Edelkeit. The purity of divinity, of godliness, the Dvar Hashem. So, how do we, how do we find that? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a question. So before I b- try to begin addressing it, maybe we could sing a niggin. To be mamtik the dinim a little bit. To sweeten the matzav, and then, uh, and then we'll be mamshach. L'chaim, 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 l'chaim. Yeah. 
Mati, Mati. If one guy hears the answer, it's good enough. That will be an accomplishment. Even in Crown Heights, if one guy hears the answer, it's good enough. Sicha Lidai Suscha Bam 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 b
ask a Jew and especially a Jew who is involved in Judaism what does your relationship with Hashem look like often the answer is emotionally when I need something I'm like God help me especially when there's a crisis I may cry help me please help me I accept he's the creator and he's the master and he orchestrates the universe so I need something and I say I want to ask you a question imagine you have a child and the entire relationship of your child to you consists of only one thing and that is Tati I need money Tati I need a phone. Mommy, get me the car. Tati, can you take me here? So how is your life? I don't talk to you about these things. I need. I need. America is soon commemorating the 50th anniversary of President Kennedy's assassination. So he coined the phrase, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Really? He paraphrased it from the Balatanya. <laughs> he didn't know. But everyone's told the Chassid who came to him complaining and asking for many things he needed and he said, Du sagst als, was du darfst. Begin was me darf dir, du sagst nicht. You say everything that you need. You don't talk about what you need it for. There's what you need is what you need it for. That's one aspect. But there's even something deeper to the concept. Namely, is it really possible to love somebody whose entire identity is basically the guy with all the power to provide you with your needs or to deprive you from your needs? By definition, the relationship is a stifled one and may even be subconsciously a very negative one. It's like at some point, you know, somebody once said, if God exists, I want to be Him. I want to be Him. Like, I need this. I need, like, who are you that have all this power? Who are you to have all this power over me? And it can generate deep resentment. It does generate deep resentment. Many people, especially when they're honest with themselves, generate deep frustration. 
that's that's part of Judaism but to reduce it to that is very primitive it's very small it's very narrow so in everything in life there's sumeran asetoiv there's what not to do and there's what to do every yes includes a no yes to one thing always means no to something else I can't embrace something without rejecting something else in our world that's how it works so in everything there's always understanding what not so I can understand what yes so the Gemara says in Masech Sanhedrin of Kuv Gimel the Gemara tells a story that page in Gemara is dedicated to a personality known as Yeravim ben Nevot. Yeravim, the son of Nevot, as you know, was the man who led a coup against Malchus Beis David. When Shloyme died, when Shloyme Melech passed away, he was succeeded by his son Rechavim. Rechavim hired the taxes and said he would increase the pressure on the people. And the Jews split. Ten tribes coronated a new king from the tribe of Ephraim, Yeravim ben Avot. And from that point there was a split among the Jewish people. There were two tribes, two Shvatim loyal to Rechavim, the son of Shloimeh, the son of David. And the other Aseris HaShvatim, the other ten tribes, joined what's known as the northern kingdom, the Malchus Yisrael, under Yeravim ben Avot. And this split continued for hundreds of years throughout the existence of the first Beis Hamikdash until most of the ten tribes were defeated and exiled and then the other two were also exiled by Babylonia. And then history changed. Yeravim ben Avot, the Gemara says in Sanhedrin, was the God Hadar. He was the greatest giant in Torah of his generation. That all the Gemara in Sanhedrin, that all the Talmudic Chachamim in his presence were like Isve Asad, they were like inferior intellectually, like the grass of the field, relative to his stature. And the Pasuk says in Tanakh, in Malachim, Achar Advarim after these events, Yeravim did not repent, because despite being such a giant, he became, he became one of the most corrupt leaders in Jewish history as the Mishnah says in Prikayavis he sinned and made everybody else sin he's the one who erected two idols in Don and Bethel and really resurrected paganism and idolatry in the Jewish world he brought the Jewish world into the world of idolatry single handedly and brilliantly so the the Pasuk says after all these events he didn't do tshuva Frag the Gemara my achar What do you mean after these events? Which events? You don't specify which events. After which events? So the Gemara tells a story. After one event. And here is a story fascinating. Rebbeinu Shalom Hashem came to Yeravim in a vision. And he gave him an offer. And the offer was, I quote, Chazorbach Vani Repent, and me, God, you, and the son of Yishai, 
King David, David HaMelech, will stroll in Ganeiden in paradise. So Yeravim Benevat, not a bad offer. Yeravim Benevat asked one question. Mi Berosh. In this walk with God, Hashem said, Me, you, and Ben Yishai. Who goes first? So Hashem says, Ben Yishai Berosh. The son of Yishai, David HaMelech, will go first. So Yeravim says, Ihachi loy if that's the case, I'm not interested. That's the meaning of the Pasuk. Even after this vision, he did not repent. He maintained his stubborn refusal to follow the path of Torah and continued that way, unwaveringly. Now I ask you two questions. First of all, you ever had such a vision of God? You know, you, me, and Mendavid will take a strolling on Aiden. Why did he merit this? But I want to understand his question. Me, Berosh? There's three, there's three on this walk. You, David, Amalekh, and God, for heaven's sake. You'll be in all the pictures. All the websites that post it, you'll be in the picture. Right? Because even if David is ahead of you, you'll be there. Was still? You have to be ahead of David, Amalekh? I mean... Let's talk in financial terms. You know, God offers you and says, come do this and this for me, and I give you $50 billion. And this guy gets $60 billion. No, I don't want. How foolish. You're getting such an offer. How foolish. But Darizal asks even a greater question. Listen to Hashem's words. Chazor Bach, repent. Vani, Vaata, who ben Yishai Natal beganeiden. God said, "Who's going first? You, me, you, and the son of Yishai." The words are precise. Hashem told him, "You're first. What's the mibirosh?" When he asked, now God changed the order. Now it's me, ben Yishai, and you. What happened? So this is the simplistic answer. Well, maybe it's not so... It's not, I mean, relative to the Arizal's answer, it's more of a simple answer. Somebody once told me the name of the Mirror Rosh Hashiva, Reb Chaim Shmolevich, Zechet Tzadik Levracha. He said, he had a very good sense of humor, and he knew how to make a joke about himself too. So he said, you know, I'm sometimes invited to officiate at a chuppah of my student, or to get a bracha. So you know the MC by Chuppus gets up and starts singing my praises to the heavens. Whatever it is. Whatever the praises are. Is now invited for Siddiq he says, you think I go up to the chuppah? I don't go up. Why not? I want to hear it again. Yeravim ben Avot heard me, you, ben Yishai. He said, I want to hear it again. God said, 
you know, second time for points, that not. Once is enough. It's a good lesson about the human condition because this is very true about people. It's very true about people and it's, it's good to be honest about it. Because when you're honest about it, that itself is, is, is part of, of healing. But what, what does it really mean? If God really said it the first time, why can't He say it a second time? There's obviously a greater depth. So the Arizal tells us, Kabbalistically, everything is written in code language. Very, very mystical, very extremely abstract. And to decode it, to demythologize the abstractions, to bring it down is very difficult. And Hashem sent the soul of the Balshemtiv and his students and the students of his students to be able to reveal and expound and explain in human terms the wisdom of Nistar, the wisdom of Pnimiya of Kabbalah. So this sugya of, of Yeravan Benavat and Ben Yishai occupies an important role in the in the works of the Balatanya, in the discourse of the Balatanya and other works. And I'm going to try to bring out one point relevant to our discussion. But this is Mamish one point from a, a huge, huge sugya, a huge mahalach, a huge maracha. It's a tremendous theme. Of course, the split between Yeravam and Rechavam is not a new split. Yeravam comes from which tribe? Ephraim. Ephraim was a son of whom? Yosef. Rechavam comes from which tribe? Yehuda. Yehuda was the king of the Shvatim. He was the son of Leah, who was the Melech. Yosef was the oldest son of Rachel, Jacob's favorite. And in the great conflict between Yosef and his brothers that takes place, takes place in Parshas Vayeshev, Yehuda is ultimately the one who suggests that they don't leave him, leave him in the pit, but that they take him out and they sell him. Ma betza! Ma betza! That we cover his blood, l'chuvenim kerenu, let's sell him, and as a result of Yehuda, Yosef is sold as a slave to Potiphar and ends up in prison and ends up to become the prime minister and Yehuda goes to, to Isha Dulami uh, with the story of Tamar the whole story so it's really and at the, the, as the narrative continues as the drama culminates it begins with Vayigash I love Yehuda Echad by Echad Yigashu Hine HaMalachim Noyadu the Medrash says the two kings Yehuda and Yosef confront each other and as a result of that confrontation Yosef declares Ani Yosef Avichai. I am Joseph, is my father, still alive. In the Haftorah of Ayigash, the Novi Yecheskel Perik Lamed Zion speaks about a day when he was told by God to take two sticks. On one staff he writes Yehuda, on the other staff he writes Ephraim, the split of Yeravim and Yerchavim, and then bring both sticks together and they become one stick. There's unity. One day, one day he says, Va'avdi David. One day there won't be a split. The two will come together. So it starts with Yehuda and Yosef in the time of Yaakov. But it doesn't end with Yehuda and Yosef. Although there is some point of this, there is, there is reconciliation, there is peace, but it resurfaces. Generations later it resurfaces. 
true, royalty is given to Yehuda, David and Shlomo. But after Shlomo's passing, royalty now goes back to the tribe of Yosef. There is a split. And most of the tribes follow Yosef. They follow Yerav Malchus Yisrael. And the Gemara in Sukkot says that there are two Mashiachs, right? There's Mashiach ben Yosef and Mashiach ben David, which we also have to understand. What are the roles of the two Mashiachs? But ultimately Mashiach ben Yosef surrenders and the ultimate Mashiach, as the Rambam makes clear in Hilchas Malachim, is Mizera David Ushleimah. Royalty belongs to the tribe of Yehuda. Mashiach will be from the tribe of Yehuda, from David and Shleimah, from Rechavam's lineage. And then there will be ultimate unity between Yosef and Yehuda. Which of course brings us to the question, why were they fighting? What was the nature of the fight? Literally it's very hard to understand. Yisrael loved Yosef, Yaakov loved Yosef more than all of his brothers. And they despised Yosef for that. Especially that their father made him a Ksoynas Pasim, a multicolored tunic. So go to Macy's and buy yourself a multicolored sweater. Because of this multicolored tunic, they throw him into a pit. How do we understand it? Vuhunar, Chazal say Rashi brings. Yosef used to dress beautifully. Masal Silbasaida, he kept his hair neat. He, he wore beautiful garments. He presented himself royally. He dreams. He dreams that the sheaves are bowing down to him. The sun and the moon and the eleven stars are bowing to him, and they despise him, they loathe him. Is this simply a, a simple story of jealousy? Their little brother is dreaming of power. Okay, I'll take a cholim. If your brother comes to you and says, I have a dream, you're going to bow down to me. Okay. So I have to throw you into a pit because you're dreaming? Lots of people have dreams. So you had a dream. So really, this, this story is amok amok miyim tsa'enu. All of Jewish history revolves on this conflict. But one angle, one pierce, one perspective is this. It's always in the name. The word Yosef comes from the word Hoysafa, Yosef, to increase, to enhance. The word Yehuda comes from the word Hapam Oida, to to surrender, to thank, to pay tribute, to acquiesce. Oida means thank, Oida means confess, Moida means I acquiesce, I surrender to you. Yehuda and Yosef are not just two brothers. They represent two dynamics of Yiddishkeit. And these two dynamics still play themselves out today in a very powerful way. And they can often be in conflict to each other. Although they're not, they ought not to be in conflict with each other. Which is why one day they'll be united. What are these two trends? I'm going to use the f- two phrases used in Hasidus and then translate. Yehuda 
claims and states that the quintessence of Judaism is captured by one word. And you know what that word is? Bittel. Yosef says that Judaism is about Metzius. Metzius means identity. Bittel means transcendence. Yosef and Yehuda represent two philosophical ideas. Yehuda says Judaism is about a relationship with Hashem who completely transcends the human mind, the human condition, the human feeling, the human experience, and therefore the only way to really connect it is by surrendering my own identity to something that's beyond me. As long as I try to fit God into me, into my terms, into my identity, it's a form of self-worship. Man was created in God's image. God can't be created in man's image, if you will. Bittul Kabbalas Oil Malchus Shamayim Yehuda Hapam Oida Moida is the act of surrender. The concept of Bittul of saying that truth is completely beyond me, and to to find it, I have to be ready. To go beyond myself, to go above myself. Yosef emphasizes a very different idea. Yosef, from the word Hisafa, talks about self growth, self enhancement. Yosef Hashemli Bein Acher, self actualization. Yosef focuses on this idea. Yosef focuses on you, on me. What Yosef says is, God loves you unconditionally. God wants you to be you. There is something in your identity, as we learned in our shiurim on Tuesday nights, there is something in your identity that is invaluable, that is irreplaceable, that is not damageable. Your dignity is absolute and unequivocal. Your inner core of self is as sacred, as good, and as pure as it gets. And in that space, the only thing that's wrong with you is that you think that there's something wrong with you. In the you, the only thing that's wrong with you is that you think there's something wrong with the you. That you is the most delicious, (laughs) adorable, cute, charming little child there is. You must embrace it like God embraces it, unconditionally. And the greatest crime is to denigrate it, to put it down, to make you lose sight of it. That's what Yosef's focus. Hence, Mesalsa Basaira, Yosef's idea of Mesalsa Basaira, he's getting dressed up, looking for the latest designs, making sure his hair has a certain, uh, certain fashion. It represents a much deeper idea. Yosef represents the idea that Judaism is about self-enhancement. It's beautiful. It's about looking at yourself and appreciating your own beauty, 
your own goodness, your own depth. That's the essence of Judaism. That your core is wholesome and divine. That your neshama is a chelek elekami mal. It's as sacred and pure as the Rebbeinu Shalom himself, as God himself. And the only reason you're criticizing yourself is because you don't know yourself. If you get into that inner wholesome place, you will have no critique, nothing negative to say. Because nothing that you do or don't do will damage it, will ruin it. That's Yosef's call. That's Yosef's approach. Now I want to show you what happens. Look at Jewish history. Who becomes a king first? Yosef or Yehuda? I'm asking you. Yosef. Who bows down to Yosef? Who bows down first to whom? Yehuda to Yosef or Yosef to Yehuda? Yehuda prostrates himself to Yosef. Later generations, David will become the king. Melucha will go to David. And even that will be with the intermediary of Shoal, who comes from Binyamin who is an interface between the world of Rachel and the world of Leah, but that's a separate subject. Why does Yosef have to be the king before Yehuda can be the king? Do you understand why? Because there's no way you can reach Yehuda if you do not first cultivate the art of Yosef. If a child is raised in yeshiva, or at home, or in school, or in uh, Beis Yaakov, Beis Rachel, Beis Rivka, Beis Sarah, girls' school, boys' school, whatever it may be. I don't want to discriminate against anybody. In Flatbush, in Borough Park, in Williamsburg, in Crown Heights, in Lakewood, in, in, in uh, Stamford Hill, or Gold is Green, in Yerushalayim, B'nai Brak, or in Tel Aviv, <laughs> or the Upper West Side of Manhattan. If a child is raised, and they're taught, even by people who have good intentions, but the message that's told to them constantly is, you always have to justify your existence. You always have to meet a certain standard. You're never good enough if you don't. There's always God who's making sure to see you doing the right thing, and if not, everything will be recounted. For everything there'll be reward, and for everything there'll be punishment. And the feeling that he gets is that he's never good enough. At the surface, it seems like, wow, what a dedicated Jew, what a subservient Jew, what a good Yehuda Jew. He's not a subservient Jew. There's no heat to be subservient. To surrender, you have to have a metzius. To build a relationship with God on His terms, there has to be a you who builds the relationship. If I can't celebrate me at my core, there's no I to build a relationship with God. The Yisoyed of Yiddishkeit, Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad, V'yahaftas Hashem Alekecha. When was the last time? You could say after Shemalakech and you actually felt in your heart love to God. You know why we can't love God? Because we hate ourselves. As long as you hate yourself, that's really hating God. 
the moment you can really, really love yourself, your essence, yourself, it doesn't mean love your mistakes. On the contrary, on the contrary, my mistakes come from the fact that I don't love myself. Since I don't know myself and I don't cherish it, therefore I'm probably making mistakes. I'm doing things to substitute for the void. But when you can really breathe in your own soul, when you can be in a state of wholesomeness where you don't have to please anybody, you don't need anybody's approval, you don't need anybody, anybody's validation, you don't need to be yoitzer for anybody, you don't need anybody's compliments, criticism can't destroy you because that core is undamageable. That's the place where the I and God's I are seamless. They're one. Because Hashem wanted you. He created you to be you. And from there, there is a natural love to your own source, to your own essence, to your own identity. You don't even have to work hard on it. But when all of Judaism is experienced in a fog... What do I mean by a fog? Fog is an acronym. Fear, obligation, and guilt. When all of Judaism is practiced with one of three things. And out of all of your life, identify your life. What is your motivation behind most things you do? Is it fear? Is it coercion? I feel forced. Or it's guilt. So you're living in a fog. My whole life I'm living in a fog. Either I'm responding to fear or I'm responding to the sense of coercion, I'm forced, I'm obligated, or I'm responding to guilt. And all three are killers. They cause me to live in a fog. I'm pushed living in a fog. Everything is out of fear. There's no creativity. There's no passion. There's no individuality. There's no enthusiasm. I'm frightened. I'm guilty. Or I'm forced. I'm not even there. My Shachris is guilt, my Mincha is guilt, my Mairev is guilt, my Shabbos is guilt. Even my kindness is guilt. My Tzedakah is guilt. My learning is guilt. If not guilt, fear. If not fear, duty and coercion. There's no celebration. There's no creativity. There's no individualism. But Hashem created you to be you, not to be Him. Before creation, there was Einoid Mulvadoi. What the Balatanya calls Achtus Hapshuta. Undefined Oneness. We were all in the womb of our mother, or even before that, in the source. There's no differentiation. There's no individuality. But the creation is the miracle that from one became many. From Achtus Apshuta came Ribu Hischalkus. From undefined oneness comes diversity. That diversity is indispensable to creation. Yosef, increase, enhance. Yifei Toyev Yifei Mareh. God is not your enemy. Judaism is not your enemy. It's your greatest ally. God just wants you to be. He wants you to be and be your fullest. And every mitzvah is another way, another opportunity to breathe in and to access the unconditional love that Hashem has to you. Every mitzvah in the world. Even a mitzvah like not saying Lashon Haro gossip. Even a mitzvah like Tzitzis, Shabbos, every mitzvah. And every line of Torah, that's the Dvar Hashem of every line in Torah. The whole, the way, the whole Pnimi, what's Pnimius HaTorah? There's a term, the, ins, the Pnimius, the inside, what's the inside of Torah? 
This of Torah means I could learn Yitzias Hashabbos time Shnayra b'fnim or time Shnayra b'chutz keitzad ha'oni yomid b'chutz balabayis b'fnim. Shnayim oichz b'tal zeimer ani mitzasiyah v'zeimer ani mitzasiyah. May mustai kohen neshmar barvis mishasha kohenim nechnasim lachol b'trumasan etc. etc. L'shem shishet varim hazevach nizbach. I'm just choosing different mishnas. And you have the legal, technical, concrete dimension of Torah, what it means, with the limitless depth. And then there's the pnimius, the pnimius is, it's telling a story of the soul. It's telling a story about the inner unity of man with God. It's a majestic story. Once you're there, there's no way, there's no way you're doing it out of fear, or obligation, or, 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 or guilt. You know, the Gemara says in Nidim, Mitzvah's Ptelus La'asid Lavoi, right? Mitzvahs will be nullified when Mashiach comes. So, what do the commentators say? One of the 13 principles the Rambam says is what? Hatayra Hazois, Loitehe Machlefes, this Torah will never be changed. Suddenly, the Gemara is reforming Judaism, Mitzvah's Ptelus La'asid Lavoi. So, one of the explanations is as follows. Mitzvah's betelis lasted lover. What does the word mitzvah mean? Commandment. Commandment represents I command you. Lasted lover when one will be fully in a state of inner redemption, meaning I will not be stuck in a false perception of myself, but I will be in my full expansive identity. I won't need the commandment. It's organic. It will be organic. It will be holistic. So when it says in Tanya Negeri Sakaiders that the time of Tefillah is a time of Geula, what he means that it's a time of Geula is there is redemption on a collective level where the whole world is redeemed. But that's created through individual states of Geula. Golos means I'm somewhere, but I'm not expressive. When you're in exile, what does it mean? Physically, when you're in exile, what does it mean? You're working for other people. Your schedule is dictated by other people. You're not yourself. You're acting out of fear or guilt or coercion. That's called gullus. That's what gullus means. Gullus is not a very mystical term. You know, let's face it. When we talk about Mashiach, so even though everyone talks about Mashiach today, and all the songs are about Mashiach, Right? But as a Jew once told me, he says, I really don't know what I'm looking for. I have it very nice in Flatbush. But you can't understand what Geula is if you don't know what Golas is. <laughs> if I don't know what exile is, there's no way I can know what redemption is. If I never tasted Golas, how can I know even what Geula is? When you realize the state of the Golas the person is, and the more you realize, the more it's almost like you see that so many of us are living in such a confined, narrow state of consciousness in our interactions with ourselves and with people and with our children and with our spouse. So then you can understand that prayer is really a time that you could redeem yourself. Imagine if all your interactions with your children could come from a place in which... You have no fear and no guilt and no coercion and you feel no disappointment with yourself and you don't feel you have to justify something. You're in a completely wholesome, serene, relaxed state which means your place where you touch God 
And that's how you speak to your child or to your spouse. You know the difference? You ever tried speaking to your child like that? You know what it can feel like? <laughs> you can't get to Yehud if you don't have Yosef. So the Rokachover writes, Rabbeinu Yosef Rosen and Safnas Panek writes, When does Torah use the word Yaakov? When does Torah use the word Yisrael? You know? Yaakov is Shem Aprati. And Yisrael is Shem Ha'uma. Meaning, whenever it says Yaakov, he's referring to Yaakov as an individual. Whenever it says the name Yisrael, it's the name of the nation. It doesn't say Yaakov loved Yosef more than all of his children. Ela told us Yaakov Yosef. Yisrael loved us Yosef Mikal Bonov. Yosef represents that unconditional love that Yisrael Yisrael Savak Yisrael Melekim Vimanoshim. That Yaakov Avinu and Adam Arishan from Hashem have unconditional love and Yosef feels it and lives it. So this goes back to what we spoke before, what gave him the courage to withstand Petifer's wife. He saw the image of Adam and he realized what he is. And I want to tell you something. <laughs> After I said what I said, I felt a little guilty. Why? Because I felt, I felt. I hope I'm wrong, but I probably was not wrong. That even that, people take wrongly. And I want to show you how the same insight can be taken in two opposite ways. Okay? You can, what was, we brought out that Adam ate a fig, and as a result of that he changed history. It shows you what an act of a person can accomplish. I could listen to this Torah, which comes from Chazidus, and, and hear it in two ways. One is, oh... So I really destroyed throughout my life millions of worlds. I mean, I've eaten one fig. I ate thousands of figs. I am so bad. Ah, one message. Message number two. So basically, I can't do anything. Because <laughs> whatever I do is changing history. Leave me alone. Take off the guilt. Take off the burden. Forget, I don't need this. Stop telling me that I can change the world. Stop telling me that I have the power to change history. You see how a message can be taken very abusively. So what does it do to a person? It increases the burden, so it increases guilt, it increases fear, it increases coercion. That's it, it does. That's why I felt guilty. <laughs> but I'm telling you that we're not supposed to feel guilty. I want to explain to you what the real message is. The real message is... When you're in touch with your goodness when you're in touch with your goodness, then you realize your power, not from a place of burden and fear, but rather, you realize your power from a place of, of wholesomeness. You realize who you are in the deepest way. And you realize how precious your moments are, how beautiful your moments are. And therefore you choose to live in that place. You don't choose... To, to crawl into a cave and live and speak from a cave, from a hiding place. You choose to live expansively. So it's the way you eat, it's the way you speak, it's the way you interact. That's what the word Hineni means. You know in Chumash it says sometimes Hineni, Hashem called Avram, what did he say? Hineni. Yaakov calls Yosef, he says, go to Shechem, what does Yosef say? Hineni. What does Hineni mean? In English we say, David, yes, ta. That's not Hineni. Ta! Yeah! What, what do you want? That's not Hineni. 
When you coming home? Tomorrow. Hineni, you can only say if you're present fully. I am here. Hineni, I am here. Ufaratsta yama v'kedma v'tzafoyna v'negba. You're fully expansive. That's Yosef. That's Yosef. Now, if you don't understand Yosef, you could listen to Yosef and say, "This is Yiddishkeit. This is Yiddishkeit. What is this? This is Avodas Hashem. This is not Avodas Hashem. This is uh, this is narcissism. This is self-worship. I'm good. I'm perfect. I'm whole. This is Avodas Hashem." But the emesis, you know the pshat, the pshat, Yosef tells his brothers, tell my father Yaakov, Samani Elohim Lo'odin Al-Kol Eretz Mitzrayim. Hashem made me a master on the whole Mitzrayim. So there's a Hasidic interpretation, homiletically, tell my father, Samani Elohim Lo'odin Al-Kol Eretz Mitzrayim. I turned Hashem into an Adon on Eretz Mitzrayim. The Nekuda of Yosef is not selfishness. The Nekuda of Yosef is selflessness. But what Yosef teaches is that if you want to know God, you have to know yourself. Mipsari the Pasuk says in Yiv. From my flesh I will perceive Hashem. If you want to know Hashem, you have to know yourself. If you're not going to fully embrace yourself, you will never be able to say, because there's no v'ahavta. There's no v'ahavta. That's why, what do we say right before Shema Yisrael? What are the, what's the last word before Shema Yisrael? Ba'ava. Ha'boycher ba'ama Yisrael. Ba'ava. He loves you. Then you could send Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad V'ahavtas Hashem Alekecha B'chol Levavcha B'chol Navshelcha B'chol Moedecha But if you believe you're nothing and you're a Shmata So who's surrendering to God? That guilty feeling that you have in you And your whole self is left behind It's not involved in the love It will come to haunt you and say Where am I in the process? Unless you repress it, you deny it, you crush it, you destroy it Reb Tzadik HaKoyen writes, at the end of L'Chadoidi, we turn around. Why do we turn around? Why? Why do we turn around? So we know halachically there's the reason of being Makabal Shabbos, coming from the outside, or the Magan Avram, the Avelim, the people who sat Shiva, come in for Shabbos and you welcome them. There's also a deeper and a spiritual interpretation. Shabbos represents an island in time. You run away into Shabbos. And often you want to run away into Shabbos l'chadoidi l'chashabbos Shabbos nekabla. And we say one second before you say mizmer shiliyim Shabbos before you're going to be mekabel Shabbos, you have to turn around. You have to take your entire life with you. You could run away into Shabbos. You know sometimes people make moves in life. They run away into a place and they leave everything behind. They leave family, they leave friends. You have to turn around. Because if you don't turn around, as I explained, if you don't turn around, so what happens is, 
your core is often left behind and it will come back to haunt the process. In order to get to Yehuda, there's Yosef. There has to be Yosef. There has to be Yosef. Yeravim ben came from Yosef. But he misinterpreted Yosef. He took Yosef and he went in a different direction. With Yosef, the self is what allowed him to touch Hashem. Yosef, real Yosef leads to Yehuda. It allows you to have a relationship in which you could transcend yourself. In which you could go beyond yourself. You have the wholesomeness to be able to challenge yourself. To be able to open yourself up. Yeravim ben completely began worshipping himself. And this is the meaning this is the meaning of what Chazal say that the Greeks the Yavonim at the time of Hanukkah what did they want from the Jews? They said one thing I want you to write down on the horn of the bull that you don't have a part in the God of Israel. Why on the horn of a bull? From all things in the world, why on the horn of a bull? When Yaakov blessed Yosef, how did he define Yosef? Yosef, the oldest of my wife Rachel, has the beauty of an ox. The and the horns of the wild ox are his horns. As Rashi puts it, it's the most uh, beautiful, aesthetical part of the Shar. The Yavanim, the Greeks, who worshipped, who worshipped themselves, and worshipped their bodies, and for them, aesthetics was more important than ethics. What was, eth- what was aesthetical was ethical. Beauty in itself was holy. Sometimes to a point of terrible immorality. The Spartan lifestyle. The murder of children who were deformed or people who were deformed. Etc, etc. This is where self-love becomes polluted by a self that is that is that is selfish and that is power hungry and that is all about aggression and no limits to its power and they look at Yosef Yosef is the one who left the yeshiva and left the cocoon and left koilel and left the life of the shepherds and he became the great economist of Egypt write on the keren hashoy embrace the style of Yosef which is always read during the time of Hanukkah that you don't have a part this is not Yehuda this is Yosef but the truth is the truth is that Yosef is a keren hashoy 
But Yosef's Karen Ashur is part of Elike Yisrael. Yosef's Karen Ashur leads to Elike Yisrael. Yosef's Karen Ashur bespeaks Elike Yisrael. Ani Oisius Ayin. The I is the same letters like the word Ayin, which means you melt away in the nothingness, in that, in the, in that, in the abstract somethingness which we call nothingness. The Yesha Amiti, the ultimate somethingness which we call Ayin. Ani Oisius Ayin. It's a different formulation. Yosef is the only one called a tzaddik. They didn't recognize their, their brother. Not only because he didn't have a beard. But it was easy to misunderstand Yosef. You looked at Yosef and you said, it's all about They didn't understand that Ani Yosef it's the same Yosef. Yosef's eye was as holy as it gets. The el- essence of the eye is the chelik elikamimal. You have nothing to worry about it. It's as holy and sacred and as pure as it gets. There's nothing guilty or bad about it. They couldn't understand it. And if you run to Yehuda before you work through Yosef, it's not real, it's not authentic, it's not Avodah Hashem. There's no tamu ruki toiva vaya fazucht vetezen as the Ebrish is good. And that's why when the God sees that there's still need, we're not ready for Yehuda, we're not ready for David. We still need to go back to Yosef, so now Yeravim ben Nevat becomes the king. But Yeravim ben Nevat pollutes the energy of Yosef. So Hashem comes to Yeravim ben Nevat and says, Do tshuva, vani, vaato. Me, you, and the son of Yishai. He heard what God said. Me, you, and then Ben Yishai. Yeravim comes first. Yosef precedes Yehuda. Metzius precedes Bittel. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. For that, you have to really... Embrace and love yourself in a wholesome, wholesome place. And now you could be present for that which is beyond yourself. When you realize the non-negotiable value and dignity of your etzem, of your essence, Yeravim ben Nevot heard that. He heard that he's Berosh. But Yeravim ben Nevot was no simpleton. Yeravim ben Avot knew all the Torahs. That's what the Gemara says. He knew everything. So he turns to Hashem and he says, But me, Beroish. I know that historically I come first. I know that in order to get to David, you need to go through Yosef. I know that. But I want to know me, Beroish. Who's really Beroish? What's really the ultimate? Hashem says, Ben Yishai Beroish. Ultimate royalty goes to Yehuda. Ultimately, it's about Vahaya Hashem Lamalach Akalaritz, Hashem where there's a seamless unity. But once you work through Yosef, it's not abusive anymore. It's the greatest moment is where you lose consciousness 
because the object and the subject become completely one. Like the great artists will describe to you that they can sing or write or speak or play the piano being self-conscious. In other words, in a state of fear, then you're in a very, very low energy zone. You could be in a place of, of confidence, of full a full acceptance and wholesomeness and, and then there's a freedom and then there's a point where you don't feel you exist because you touch that essence of existence which is beyond the need to be conscious of existence that's the ultimate Yehuda Ben Yishai Berosh ultimately Enoid Movadai it's about the complete complete unity Yeravim said, If that's Yiddishkeit, then I don't want it. I'm going back. I'm going back to self-worship. Yatsi Yeravim Benavad. So the first step in Avaydis Hashem, the first step in Tamu Ruki Toiv Havaya is to learn the Pchina of Yosef. To learn really what Yosef is. And then you can go to Yehuda. The Yisrael of is Yosef Mikol Bonov. That in a very genuine, genuine place, you have to speak and live from that place of non-negotiable wholesomeness. We spoke in the Shir that the soul has six features. It's confident. It's... Uh, it's vulnerable. It's, it's, it has integrity. It's uh, honesty. integrity, honesty. Huh? No. It's innocent and pure. It's, it's joyous. Joy. It's always happy. It doesn't need. It doesn't need to be depressed to be from. It's always happy. <laughs> it doesn't have to be depressed. It doesn't have to be judgmental. There's love, tremendous love, and there's tremendous faith. There's a relationship. In Hashem's space, there's confidence and there's joy. That was Yosef's space. So Yosef went through the hardest life of anybody. But what? He's the happiest person in Tanakh. Hands down, Yosef wins, wins the contest of happiness. He's so happy that as I once told you in the prison cell, he sees two Gentiles depressed, Zoyafim, depressed. Like most people, you see them in shul, seven in the morning. What do they look like? Seven forty-five. They had a good night's sleep. And ten o'clock, they're all smiling in shul. Ten o'clock. The guy slept four and a half hours. Yeah. So Yosef turns to them and says, "Madua pnechem Why are you sad? Why are you depressed? Excusez-moi." You're in a cell. You don't have a mother. You don't have a family. You're here for life. You're asking me, what was, what was he? He was dancing Kazatskas? But that was Yosef. That was Yosef. His happiness was not based on circumstances. His well-being was not based on circumstances. Of course we don't want to be in prison, chas v'shalom. Of course you want your circumstances to be awesome and gewaldig, betoiv nigla, blessed in a revealed way. But well-being is not based on circumstances. Sometimes there are difficult situations, more or less. Why? Because, well, the well-being, the simcha sachayim, comes from 
an inner place, an inner core that has to be addressed. And this is not often addressed in schools and in homes and in shuls and in shiurim. And really, this is the marrow of Yiddishkeit. In Yiddish, there's a word, march, the marrow. You know what the marrow is? How do you say it? The, uh, the merch, the etzem, the atzmius, the bone, the bone, the core of the bones. This is the atzmius of it. Everything is built on Yosef. Be Yisrael Avis Yosef Mikol Bonov. For Yisrael to survive, you need the paradigm of Yosef. And then you can build mansions of Yehudi, you can build Malchus based David. But if you don't have Yosef, there's no Malchus based David. They saw Yosef as an enemy to Malchus based David. The Shalom writes that Yehudi is the father of Mashiach. And Yosef is dreaming that you're going to bow down to him. So it's a merida against Mashiach. It's treason against the Malucha of Beis David. Chayiv Misa. That's the Shalos perspective. It's a rebellion against the kingdom of Malach Mashiach. What they failed to realize, and Yaakov did realize, is you're not getting to Mashiach if you don't go through Yosef. You're not getting to Malchus Beis David if you don't go through Malchus Yosef. And that's true in our lives as well. In our history as well. And this is the absolute Nekudah that was coined in one line in Tanya, in the beginning of Perik Beis of Tanya. But Nefesh Hashem is Yisrael, he chelek elekam mimal, and he has the word mamash. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.